In our first episode, we discussed how Shakespeare uses the highly conventional form of the sonnet to explore unconventional experiences of desire. In this episode, we'll focus on the sonnet's two major characters or addressees, the speaker's relationship with them and the significance those relationships might have had in Shakespeare's time. Guiding our discussion is Michael Schoenfeld, John Knott Professor of English Literature at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. One of the things that's most interesting is the ways in which he keeps returning to the question of where desire comes from, what elicits desire, what satisfies desire, and what follows the satisfaction uh, uh, of desire. The things that pull us to other people, the things that make us feel betrayed by other people, and the things that still allow us to continue to explore with other people. There are poems that are about loss, pure loss, and what can redeem loss. Even the most comforting poems, I feel, aspire to comfort and want to soothe, but never fail to articulate powerfully the sense of loss and leave the space between loss and recuperation never fully encompassed. Sonnets were conventionally written from a male-gendered speaker to a woman, but the majority of Shakespeare's sonnets are not addressed to a woman. They either leave the gender of the addressee unstated or explicitly or implicitly address a young man. The speaker refers to this man as beauty's summer and the lovely gaze where every eye doth dwell. The first 17 sonnets ask this beautiful young man to pass on his beauty by fathering children and so preserve a copy of himself for the enamoured speaker. From the opening lines of his sequence, from fairest creatures we desire increase. He's telling a young man that he loves him so much and knows that time will do its ravages on him that he has to reproduce himself because he's so beautiful. It's his obligation and his own beauty will pass. These poems are so unconventional. They're so unusual. They're so bizarre. Encouraging a beautiful member of your own sex to have sex with somebody else in order to fulfill his love to you was not the standard erotic narrative then or probably now. It was certainly more usual for sonnets to show a man in love with a woman. But what was unusual in this literary context may have been less unusual in other contexts. It's important to remember that there were no women allowed on stage and that this was a culture that could easily imagine a male a young male playing a female, and imagine thereby, I would argue, a greater fungibility between sexes and genders than we would. And imagine that almost desire would precede genitalia. We'll run into this in Sonnet 20, Shakespeare's little narrative of how this beautiful young man was originally created. Sonnet 20 plays exactly on this idea of gender being fungible or changeable. We see Mother Nature herself changing her mind midway through creating the beautiful addressee. A woman's face with nature's own hand painted has thou, 
the master mistress of my passion, a woman's gentle heart, but not acquainted with shifting change as is false women's fashion, an eye more bright than theirs, less false in rolling, gilding the object whereupon it gazeth. A man in hue, all hues in his controlling, which steals men's eyes and women's souls amazeth. And for a woman wert thou first created, till nature, as she wrought thee, fell a doting, and by addition me of thee defeated, by adding one thing to my purpose, nothing. But since she pricks thee out for women's pleasure, mine be thy love, and thy love's use their treasure. This poem is about how the young man came to be the young man. We hear the story. And for a woman, wert thou first created, till nature, as she wrought thee, fell a doty. So originally it was going to be a woman. And then nature falls in love with him. And nature decides to try to resolve her own desires into something like heterosexuality. So nature decides to add one thing to my purpose, nothing. And the pun on thing, penis. One thing about the form of this poem that Shakespeare so brilliantly exploits, the rhyme, it's, it has one extra syllable at the end of each line, and that is called feminine rhyme, that just as the rhymes in the poem play on the idea of adding one syllable to create feminine rhyme, so is one thing added to this beautiful woman to produce the young man who is the master mistress and that gorgeous oxymoronic gender-blending title. So this poem is trying to parse out the mystery of this figure who steals men's hearts and women's souls amazed, is sort of desired by everybody, men and women, heterosexual men, homosexual. And in that final couplet, but since she pricked thee out, which means to claim, to choose, but also to add a prick, to hear the young woman is, is then pricked out for women's pleasure. Mine be thy love and thy love's use, their treasure. How I would argue that sorts out is you and I can have non-reproductive sex, mine be thy love, and thy love's use, the kind of reproductive sex that you can have with women, they get to have. So for me, it's a complete fulfillment of the deep bisexual commitments or ambisexual commitments of, of this remarkable poem and speaker. The fluidity of gender and desire in this poem reflects a not dissimilar sense of fluidity around desire in Shakespeare's own culture. As far as we can tell, this was a culture that didn't categorize people by their desires. They seem to have imagined almost all individuals as existing as on a kind of continuum. It seemed to have been a culture that imagined a much greater degree of what we would categorize as bisexuality in that regard. And particularly, 
beautiful young men seem to have been the site of heightened erotic attention, both of men who preferred same-sex desire, probably heterosexual men, and probably heterosexual women, and maybe even, although we don't have good records of this, women who experience same-sex desire. Anyway, it's a culture that seemed far more hospitable to a range of desires almost not fully connected to genitalia, that men could think other men were deeply desirous. The sort of category of heterosexual versus homosexual seems not to have existed. And everybody seems to have been on some kind of a possible range there, which is, I think, one of the areas that the sonnets exploit most powerfully and brilliantly is the ways in which those kinds of loves same sex and opposite sex might interact and play out. And I mean, the big difference for this culture is that the one kind of love produces children. The culturally sanctioned model for romantic sexual love in Shakespeare's Protestant Christian England was heterosexual marriage intended to beget children. But At the same time, the culture's ideal of perfect friendship, a marriage of true minds, as Sonnet 116 puts it, was not between men and women, but between men and men. Shakespeare dramatises this dynamic of deep same-sex friendship in numerous plays, from Twelfth Night to The Winter's Tale. A lot of patriarchies particularly play this out, that the highest emotional and intellectual and Bonds of intimacy were those between equals, which were only men to men. Shakespeare seems repeatedly to pass through a kind of same-sex intimacy towards heterosexuality. Shakespeare's men who remember how close they were as boys will repeatedly play out something like that. And it's almost like a fall from a kind of intimacy that may never quite get recaptured again. And again, that gets us into the realm of these poems, which are so much about trying to find the language in which a kind of authentic intimacy might be articulated. When Shakespeare's sonnet sequence does shift its focus to a woman, it doesn't offer heterosexual relations as a clearly superior alternative to the homoerotic attachment previously depicted. We do get one of the dark lady poems, which imagines the speaker with a good angel and a bad angel. What's fascinating in that poem, particularly for a largely heterosexist society, is that the good angel is the young man and the bad angel is the woman. So heterosexuality becomes almost the temptation from a kind of more idealized same-sex attachment. And the speaker of that poem finally tells us, he starts getting jealous, thinking maybe they're having sex together when they're not with him. And then he says, I'll never know that till my bad angel fire my good one out. And to fire out meant to infect with venereal disease. The love triangles become almost nightmarish in the later poems. I do find a kind of deepening of the shadows. The term, the dark lady poems, which Professor Schoenfeld notes is 
quite problematic, is often used to describe sonnets 127 to 152. These poems are addressed explicitly or implicitly to a woman, and some describe her hair, eyes, skin and beauty as brown or black. This woman's beauty is not the cultural standard, as sonnet 127 notes. In the old age, black was not counted fair. But, the speaker continues, now is black beauty's successive heir. Sonnet 132, praising the addressee's black eyes, concludes, Then will I swear beauty herself is black, and all they foul that thy complexion lack. Sonnet 130, beginning, My mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun, lists all the woman's traits that do not match poetic conventions of beauty, including her black hair and dun or brown-coloured skin. But it concludes, And yet by heaven I think my love as rare as any she belied by false compare. Shakespeare is here referring to the way that sonnets tended to falsify their subject with exaggerated comparisons. Eyes like suns, skin like snow, cheeks like roses, hair like gold. His poem eschews those worn-out Petrarchan metaphors in favour of his beloved's real remarkable qualities. Now, the darkness of the dark lady, blackness could be dark hair, black could be darkly complected, somebody who was not light-skinned, light-haired, blue eyes, that Northern European model that had set for the longest time the standards of purported beauty. She doesn't fulfill all the exaggerated compliments of standard Petrarchan beauty, but yet she's great. Recent scholarship has shown that there were significant numbers of black people living in late 16th and early 17th century London, and that Shakespeare himself must have encountered black people. So we can't assume the imagined addressee of these poems wasn't a black woman. This makes it all the more important to consider the range of meanings associated with the terms dark and black in Shakespeare's culture. I think it's a kind of pre-racialized but deeply denigrated notion of that color that hardens into the racism of the 18th century and after. You can feel in these poems and throughout the culture and throughout the culture's language of praise of beauty and all of that, a kind of profound hierarchy of Northern European aesthetic features. They hadn't yet let race harden in the ways we're now trying to undo. At the same time, a play like Othello does pick up on powerful racist, uh, something that demeans repeatedly darkness, blackness. Scholars debate exactly when race and racism emerged as the concepts we understand today. But scholars like Kim Hall and Peter Erickson argue that by the 17th century, whiteness was understood as a race in opposition to blackness. And skin colour and religion often functioned together to mark certain groups as other in relation to white English Protestants. The term more, for example, was associated both with Islam and with dark skin. 
In the literature of the time, we also find deep undercurrents of racialized thinking, mapping hierarchies of beauty, purity and nobility onto a hierarchy of skin colour. In Shakespeare's play Othello, The Moor of Venice, the Duke compliments the black Othello's character by saying he is far more fair than black. In A Midsummer Night's Dream, Lysander insults Hermia's looks with terms that refer to brown and black-skinned foreigners. Out, tawny Tartar! Away, you Ethiop! Some of Shakespeare's sonnets, as we've seen, acknowledge this traditional association of blackness with ugliness while also seeking to undo it. But other sonnets use the terms black and dark to describe not the woman's beauty, but her apparently immoral actions. Sonnet 131 toggles between these two meanings of black, saying, Thy black is fairest in my judgment's place, in nothing art thou black, save in thy deeds. Here and elsewhere, the speaker expresses a strong sense of self-division over his attraction to a woman that his culture doesn't find desirable. For well thou knowest to my dear doting heart, thou art the fairest and most precious jewel. Yet in good faith some say that thee behold, thy face hath not the power to make love groan. To say they err, I dare not be so bold, although I swear it to myself alone. Sonnet 147 expresses similar self-division over a love that wastes the speaker like a disease. He expresses this love's demonic qualities through the language of blackness. My love is as a fever, longing still for that which longer nurseth the disease, feeding on that which doth preserve the ill, the uncertain sickly appetite to please my reason, the physician to my love, angry that his prescriptions are not kept, hath left me, and I, desperate, now approve desire is death, which physic did accept. Past cure I am, now reason is past care, and frantic mad with evermore unrest. My thoughts and my discourse, as madmen's are, at random from the truth vainly expressed. For I have sworn thee fair, and thought thee bright, who art as black as hell, as dark as night. One of the reasons the poems are so valuable to us is because of their brilliant account of how turbulent and unsettling desire is, and how once you satisfy it, how you move from desire to satiation to nausea, Back to desire. For Shakespeare, it was almost a treadmill that I think the form of the sonnet, the little 14-line poem that you then start over and then you start over, became a very good way to think about. Love in this period wasn't just something to be worshipped and praised and idealized, but it was something that could make you do all kinds of mad and crazy things. Love was thought to be a heated passion, a passion that heats you up. Shakespeare takes that and turns it into a full fledged disease here. My love is as a fever. And you tend to desire exactly what makes you sicker, which is stunning. That longing still always for that which longest nerth is the disease. And Shakespeare, I mean, he knows something about the ways in which the things we desire shorten our lives, 
make us do crazy, wild, weird things that uh, drive us to madness. I desperate now approve desire is death. And the speaker who is frantic, mad with ever more unrest, one of the most anxious lines I know in all of English verse about the challenges of, of desire. Then we get this bizarre, weird couplet that pretends to explain the previous disease, but for me only expands upon it. For I have sworn thee fair and thought thee bright, who art as black as hell, as dark as night. Here, blackness begins, I think, to take on not just a color, but a moral complexion. The closing couplet does assume a moral hierarchy associated with color, indeed with skin color. As Kim Hall and others have shown, the term fair connects aesthetic attractiveness with goodness and with whiteness. All three connotations of fair are at work in Sonnet 144, which opens, Two loves I have of comfort and despair, which like two spirits do suggest me still. The better angel is a man right fair, the worser spirit a woman coloured ill. Fair is linked to the goodness of the better angel and to beauty and whiteness by contrast with the worser spirit coloured ill. The word fair appeared in the very first line of the first sonnet, From fairest creatures we desire increase. The first 17 sonnets urge the young man, who is often called fair, to father an heir and uphold his fair house linking notions of fairness also to notions of class. In Shakespeare's society, it was particularly the nobility who were concerned with inheritance and perpetuating a family line. This concern is absent from the later poems. One of the things that's always troubled me about the poems, again, we call the Dark Lady poem, is how even though they're aggressively heterosexual for the most part, there's no talk of progeny. There's no talk of reproduction. The very theme that inaugurated the sequence as it comes down to us has completely evaporated at that point. It may be, as Hall suggests, that this woman is imagined as a less desirable reproductive partner because she's seen as such a contrast to the young man's moral, social and physical fairness. Sonnet 144 demonises the woman coloured ill by associating her with devils and fiends. In the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, devils were represented as black. Sonnet 147 similarly calls the addressee black as hell. Yet these poems still express a powerful erotic desire. That completely divided consciousness comes out in the profound and self-defeating desire for that which both longer nurseth the disease, as he says, and which completely belies all other possible meanings of, of aesthetic beauty. If the poems are in the sequence, and I don't think they are, this is a story that starts happy and ends horror. You know, this is a, too, deeply tragic. The sequence as a whole is strongly overlaid with a sense of tragedy and of loss. Sometimes the relationship itself is represented as a source of destruction. 
Sometimes the relationship is transcendently rewarding or uplifting, which only makes it more painful when the speaker must face the fact that the relationship and the other person will inevitably come to an end. It's something I've wrestled with. I tend to find those poems all the more powerful, those tender expressions of love, which are gorgeous. Uh, Even Shall I Compare Thee to a Summer's Day, I would say, is haunted by impermanence. And that's the thing about it. A summer's day is gorgeous and long, but it goes away. And part of the power of that poem is trying to figure out a way to imagine a desire that might last longer than the gorgeous, sensuous beauty of a summer's day. In our next episode, we'll analyse the sonnet Shall I Compare Thee to a Summer's Day alongside another haunting representation of desire as madness. But we'll start with reading strategies that will enable you to track the techniques and ideas of every sonnet in the sequence. 